Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, an update from the Royal Canadian Air Force on the cyclone helicopter that crashed off the coast of Greece in April, killing six Canadians. We'll also hear from Vancouver Park Board Commissioner John Cooper. He joins us to talk about where the board landed on the contentious issue of reducing vehicles on Stanley Park Drive and a slight easing of border restrictions by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But it won't change much for people waiting for everything to get back to normal. That and much, much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, there is an update and it involves the Royal Canadian Air Force and the cyclone helicopter that crashed off the coast of Greece in April. Six Canadians were killed in that crash. We're joined now by Global News contributor and military analyst Matthew Fisher for more on this. Matthew, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on. Uh, We still don't have a lot of detail, but we do have some more information on what caused the crash, what led up to the crash. What is your take on this? Well, it's not even a preliminary report. It's uh, what they're calling uh, uh, an update, an initial update, I guess. And it is starting to show us where the investigators have gone. And there is a little more detail, as you say, about the accident. The helicopter was very close to the ship. We did not know that uh, in the days after it happened. We knew that it was within a few kilometers. It turns out that it was much, much closer than that. It flew past the ship from the stern uh, to the bow and made a left-hand turn to come back to land on the ship when it went down. So it would have been at very low altitude. This initial update that's been provided says they are looking specifically at two things. One is pilot error. Did the pilots do something wrong as they made that turn to come back to the ship or or in the various preparations that go before that? Or did the maintainers of the aircraft make a mistake with the equipment that caused it to fail? The other part of it, and I think it's far more likely this is the reason, but I'm not an expert on these matters, uh, far more likely what happened uh, was that there was a failure of a, of a critical system in the aircraft. And at low air altitude, if you're only at, um, say, 50 meters or 100 meters in height, you have very little time to react. I've seen the cyclone on Canadian uh, frigates in the ones out of Victoria flying uh, in the Far East uh, off the Chinese coast. Um, they're a fantastic helicopter when they work well, but of course anything if the system has something wrong with them you can get into trouble uh, and uh, that's what happened this time but to have it happen so close to the ship there were a lot of eyewitnesses to this too and uh, i imagine that was a traumatic experience uh, and of course for the families at home of those six people who died Mm, yeah, looking at some of the findings or what they're looking at now, like you said, it was so close to the ship and one of the uh, the parts of the, the report saying the aircraft did not respond as the crew would have anticipated. That 
sounds as if it, when they wanted to complete the turn, it didn't turn, or as they were trying to level the helicopter out for the final approach to the ship with a turn, that it just went straight down because normally you would not be putting it into the water. You don't ditch it at that point. Uh, but it happened so quickly, there was no mayday call. Uh, there was no communication with the ship to say anything about systems or anything else. It was just bing and it happened. What they will also be looking at very intensely will be previous accidents with this helicopter type. This is a new type of aircraft, but it is built on an old, uh, older frame, Sikorsky, an older frame that's often used uh, to um, help oil rigs out, to service them, to supply crews to them. And the Hibernia oil field off Newfoundland, there was uh, in 2009 uh, an accident uh, where they went in and 17 of the 19 people on that helicopter died immediately. One got out of the helicopter but drowned, and then one there was one survivor. They will be looking at that, and the conclusions from that one was that it was an engine failure related to the facts that, that the gearbox failed, and they, they believe that in that case it was oil and lubrication. Uh, the problem for the Canadian Navy is they need these helicopters. They're a critical part of the system, but the pilots, nobody else wants anyone, of course, to be flying these things if there is a critical problem to be solved. If there's pilot error, you can train for that, Joe. You can uh, you can fairly quickly get a helicopter back flying if it's just the pilots did something wrong and you know what it is. If it's uh, something to do with the systems of the helicopter, then there's much more work that needs to be done because you have to obviously repair all the other helicopters too. All right, uh, Matthew, we will leave it there and uh, expecting more information in the coming months. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. Matthew Fisher, a military journalist, also a global news commentator. And uh, we have been told it could take up to a year before a final determination is made on what brought that aircraft down. This is Mornings with Simi. A new report put out by Global News investigative journalist Stuart Bell takes a look at the RCMP adding incels to their terrorism awareness guide. Self-described incels or involuntary celibates are individuals unable to find romantic partners and include the suspect in a van attack in Toronto that killed 10 people in 2018. Stuart Bell joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Uh, what does it mean, or what's the significance of this being added to the guide, the Terrorism Awareness Guide? Well, I mean, first of all, some context. The, the RCMP's Terrorism and Violent Extremism Awareness Guide was put out first in 2015, and the idea was to give particularly parents and you know teachers, uh, frontline police officers, anybody who's kind of coming into contact regularly with young people, um, an idea of what to look for when somebody might be going through the stages of uh, violent radicalization. And, um, you know, so this, this was put out at the time when, you'll recall, a lot of Canadians were leaving um, a large, there were dozens that left Canada to go and join ISIS. And so the, the idea was if we can make parents in particular more aware of what to look for, maybe they can try and sort of interrupt this process before it gets out of hand. 
And so what they're doing now is adding um, incels to the guide. And the thinking, again, is that um, maybe if uh, people that are around young people, parents, whatever, if they were a little more familiar with what an incel is and, and the kind of the symbols and the language uh, and the kind of ideology that they're spouting, they might be in a better place to recognize that um, their child or, or student or whatever is going through this kind of, is falling down that rabbit hole and needs help. And, you know, the idea, of course, is uh, if we can do this, maybe we can interrupt acts of violence before anyone gets killed. And the, you wrote about the guide, the fact that it was brought out in 2015, but in the report that you had put out, you'd also said it was removed from the RCMP website recently. Is it still accessible to people? Well, no. I mean, it's been taken down. It's accessible if you know how to use the internet and, and find a cached version of it. But they've taken it down, I believe, last week in anticipation of posting a new version, which will have, I think, new definitions and uh, you know, include incels under the category that they call um, ideologically motivated violent extremism. And does it give any idea, or do do you think do we have any idea in Canada how many incels they are, or how big of a group this could potentially be? Well, I mean, when you look at the broader incel, I guess subculture is what you might call it. Uh, it's actually quite a few people. Um, you know, estimates in in sort of tens of thousands. Uh, but, you know, within that group, most of them are not violent. Most of them are sad people who um, maybe are um, very kind of self-loathing. If you if you spend some time on their online forums, you see a lot of self-hatred, um, a lot of talk about suicide and things like that, uh, and a lot of blaming uh, of society for whatever is bothering them. But, you know, you also see uh, within that misogyny, uh, the justification of violence as um, something that's legitimate because they feel they're oppressed. And I guess most disturbingly is really the glorification of people who've conducted attacks like the Toronto Van Attacker and others who have taken lives and holding these people up as some kind of heroes. And if you look at the cycle of this type of violence over the last couple of years when it's really accelerated, what you see is young people who are going to these online forums, reading about people who have conducted attacks and deciding that that's something they want to emulate. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's a disturbing online subculture that uh, um, it's really just a swamp of, uh, you know, misogyny against women, uh, you know, violence against women, I should say, and, and justification for violence. And so is the the goal of the guide then, like you said, to help people who have contact with young people who then might be able to see these signs? And I would imagine then stop things before they turn violent or before somebody goes further down that road? Yeah, I mean, the title calls it an awareness guide. And, you know, that's the that's the objective, because I think, you know, any anyone would probably be able to recognize uh, if their child or whoever was going to say ISIS websites, or they might, you know, they might recognize the type of language the person is using. But I think maybe uh, Canadians in particular are less familiar with the kind of lingo and, and symbolism of incel subculture. And so the you know the hope is that um, just by making people um, a little more aware 
about what this is about and what to watch for, they can intervene when people start uh, going in that direction and get help for them. Because presumably the RCMP, or maybe not presumably, uh, would imagine that they are watching these groups or watching these chat rooms or, or where uh, incels are to see if suddenly it shifts from idolizing somebody who did an attack to planning one themselves. You know, I'm I'm not sure that's true. I just uh, there's so there's such a huge volume of traffic on the internet, um, you know, involving all kinds of threats, but particularly incels. I don't think um, intelligence or police have the resources to sit around and monitor incel chat groups and try and figure out who's who and should they be investigating them. Um, I think that's the problem. Is there is such a just such a mass of this stuff online. Um, a much better way to deal with it is probably for people to, like I say, notice what's going on. And the reality is, you know, whenever an attack happens, we always hear the kind of cliched response that, uh, oh, he was a quiet young man and we never expected he would do this. But the reality is that um, the research has shown that almost in every case where someone uh, commits an act of violence like this, sort of extremist uh, violence, there were indications, like they they emitted signs that they were going through this transformation, but it's just that it wasn't recognized or it wasn't acted upon. And probably, you know, the best way to deal with this is for for people to have a better understanding of radicalization and the different um, types of movements that are trying to attract people, and to try and um, you know interrupt that when it when it happens. All right, Stuart, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's Stuart Bell, Global News investigative journalist. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you may have heard, if you are going to be riding or traveling on a BC ferry come June 15th, it will be a requirement that you bring a mask or some kind of face covering with you. Let's bring in Nikki Wright-Meyer, CKNW Mornings contributor, to talk a little bit more about this. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. What about wearing masks in general? You know, whether or not you're on a BC ferry, uh, but more commonly, you know, if you're going to the store, have have you taken to wearing a mask? I have. And especially there's a few stores. Uh, yesterday, I had to go furniture shopping and I had to make an appointment oh. and wear a mask in the store, which is fine. Everybody was wearing them and it seemed pretty easy. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I'm 50-50. I, I have no problem with it. Just sometimes you, you forget to bring it with you or suddenly you're in the store and you go, oh, wait, oh, the mask again. And, and you kind of catch yourself. But yeah, no, I, I have no problem with it. I know some people complain about it. And you, you hear a bit of a bit of pushback. But I think overall, it's not the end of the world. Simply a sign of the times that we live in. I was actually reading yesterday in Prince George's newspaper, The Citizen. I was looking at it online and they ran what is a totally informal poll, but they just wanted to get it an idea of sort of what public sentiment is when it comes to wearing a mask. And they asked the question, if a local business informed you that you had to wear a face mask before entering, would you do it? And 75% of people said, yeah. And they said yes for two different reasons, either yes, because it's for the safety of myself, of the staff, or the other smaller group, 12% said yes, because I want to support that local business. And then the other the other 25% said, no, I wouldn't because, you know, I, I, I want to take my business elsewhere, or I don't think that wearing a mask helps. So it looks like, according to this informal poll from Prince George, that 
the majority of people are pretty comfortable wearing masks. But whether or not we see any backlash when the BC Ferries put this new plan into place as of June 15th will be another story. So as of June 15th, if you are going to the BC Ferries, you are going to what? Be asked when you check in at the terminal whether you have a mask or not? Yeah, exactly. So right when you check in, they're going to ask you, did you bring a mask with you? And if you say yes, then there's going to be a follow-up question as well, presumably. And that is supposed to be, you know, are you ready to wear this mask if you find yourself in a situation where you can't meet that six-foot minimum distance requirement? So maybe you're standing in line for the white spot, the ever-popular white spot on a BC ferry, uh, and you're not finding yourself able to navigate a six-foot distance between you and the other hungry travelers around you, then, okay, now's the time to put on your mask. And if you're prepared to do so, they'll hand you your ticket and they'll let you board that BC ferry. But if you say no, then, well, according to what we know so far, you won't be allowed to board. I'm not sure how strict they ultimately will be on those rules, but at least that's what we're hearing at this point anyways. And again, like you mentioned, it doesn't have to be uh, a literal face mask from from what I understand. It can be anything they're saying uh, that covers your face. So we're talking about a scarf, a piece of material, although Public Health Agency of Canada encourages you, of course, to have something that fits a bit more securely over your face. But according to BC Ferries, they're saying it can be even a scarf, just something that covers up your mouth as well as your nose. And it seems like it's a little bit out there as far as the rules. And and so you could go through saying, okay, I'm wearing this scarf. And if I go up up to the top deck, I'll just throw it around my head and we'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm really curious to see how this works. It's great to put this out as a policy um, in paper, But when it comes to people actually doing it, and the other side of this is RBC Ferry staff equipped to deal with potential conflict because you're going to have people that, you know, they they say, yes, I have my mask and they board the BC Ferry. And then when push comes to shove, if pushing and shoving happens, they're they're not going to be wearing their mask or they'll refuse to wear one or lo and behold, they didn't actually bring one with them. And how will BC Ferry staff navigate that? Will you be sent back to your vehicle where you have to wait out the remainder of the trip because we know you can wait in your vehicle now on BC ferries or you know do you get put in the the quarantine timeout room or or how does this happen do they maybe did they just let it go do you have to stand outside for the rest of the sailing the the place where you ride with your pets which is the worst spot on the ferry (laughs) you must go there with the pets no and I we were laughing about it but what about somebody with asthma who can't wear a mask then are we saying so if you have asthma you have to stay in your car or you can't ride on a BC ferry Well, and maybe that person would have to adapt by wearing uh, that scarf around their mouth and around their nose, something that is a bit you know, lighter, that still is within the BC Ferry guidelines, but still covers their mouth and nose from any time that they're sneezing or something like that. So I think that they have made some adjustments to anything that could be perceived as a hard rule, and they've softened it a bit by saying, look, it doesn't have to be a medical grade mask. It can even just be a scarf. All right. Uh, a lot of questions, but you're right. We'll see how that starts playing out uh, as of June 15th uh, when the rules come in. Nikki, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. That's Nikki Wright-Meyer, CKNW Mornings contributor. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, we know a lot of charities are struggling right now to keep up with increased demand for services because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, Variety Children's Charity has found a creative way to try and help people who need that little extra help right now. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Variety CEO Callie Wesson. Callie, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's awesome to be back. Thank you. (laughs) Well, how much has the need or the demand for help, how much have you seen it increase? Uh, Well, even starting even before COVID, we were seeing um, a doubling of applications for funding uh, for kids. And so with the COVID crisis, it's kind of uh, escalated because of the fact that obviously our fundraising isn't where it is. Um, right now, we have about 300 kids waiting for our help, and this is on top of the 1,000 kids we're helping just right now. And the thing with variety is when a child is waiting for help, there's no one else really to help that child. Uh, we're seeing things like orthotics for birth defects is something we do a lot at variety, and we have kids just waiting um, for these, and if we can't help them, no one else will. So it's quite crazy and quite uh, overwhelming. Uh, you know, this is the first time in Variety's history that we've really um, not been able to help all the kids that need our help. So, yeah, it's super stressful. Yeah, that's got to be difficult because that's the whole point yeah. of Variety is, is to help everybody that, that needs a little bit extra. I understand you've Variety has partnered up with some local businesses in trying to get help to more people. Yeah, and one of the amazing things is we've kind of gone out to the community and said, hey, we need help for these kids. And uh, Accent Inn uh, stepped up and uh, is doing an amazing promotion over the summer. Uh, basically, uh, if you stay at an accent inn, which I always love to do, uh, you have the, uh, the ability to donate back your discount. So, uh, accent inn is offering 25% off to all British Columbians, and you can actually donate that money, uh, back to Variety to help kids with speech therapy, uh, mobility equipment, uh, specialized therapies. Uh, everything that we do. So it's it's super exciting. And it's just, you know, when we heard about uh, Accent Hin and Mandy and the team stepping up to do this, I think the, our whole staff was in tears. It was overwhelming. Uh, you know, when you, every day you're, you're wondering if you're going to be able to help um, all the kids that need, with special needs that need help. And a company like Accent Hin steps up. It, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming, huge. And you know, and I think they're showing other community leaders that they can also step up to help these kids. And have you noticed it because of the pandemic as well? Is it, has it been more difficult as far as delays? And, and not only has the demand gone up, but is it, are there more challenges because of protocols and such with the pandemic? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, all, you know, we're just getting back to some kids being able to go see a therapist, but before that, Everything was having to be dealt with, delivered by telehealth. And then you have parents who suddenly lost their jobs um, or have been laid off. Um, so, so the COVID crisis has totally impacted the special needs community in a way that I think um, is just overwhelming. I know I, I'm a mom and being home, working from home and, and caring for my son full time without the support of daycare and school has been you know, obviously overwhelming, but if you have a child with special needs who needs that extra care, 
it's even more overwhelming. I would say it takes a village to raise a child, and and that's especially true with the special needs community. We have therapists um, helping out, teachers helping out. Suddenly, parents, um, moms, dads, and caregivers are are becoming the therapists. They're becoming the counselor. They're you know, I know um, Mary Cardle, who's one of the moms, but uh, often speaks about how Variety's impacted her and Ainsley. Ainsley has Down syndrome. You know, she's she's doing everything, every every role that everyone normally she has help with, um, while she's trying to maintain work. And so it's just been it's been so overwhelming for the the special needs community. And I really think that you know, with people, um, you know losing their jobs and being financially impacted, even next year, we're going to see an even more increased demand um, for parents looking for help. Uh, one of the things that I think as a parent is, you know, you want to give your kid everything that they, that you can possibly give them to, to thrive. And, you know, when you can't afford something like orthotics, or you can't afford something like speech therapy for your child, um, you're kind of left scrambling, and we we really are, I think, on the brink of um, a crisis for um, special needs kids across BC. Because if Variety can't pick up that slack that normally we do in in kind of the system, um, I, I just really don't know who's going to help these kids, and and that's something that's it's it's just so stressful. So yeah, the pandemic has totally impacted, and I think will continue to impact even if that second way because you know parents you know struggling to figure out how they're going to pay for what their kid needs I was I'm I always tell the story but when I first joined Variety there was a mom who was speaking at our, a donor event we had and she said you know until I learned about Variety I'd actually given up on my daughter ever speaking because I couldn't afford speech therapy and for me that's really why we're here and that's why you know, when Accent In came up and said, hey, we're going to do this big promotion for Variety, um, that it's it just, you know, they're there to help that parent who, you know, desperately wants their kid to walk, to speak, to communicate, um, but can't afford the therapy or the support to do it. And, and that's why we're all here. And that's why I think right now we're really embarking on a crisis for our kids across the province. This is Mornings with Simi. Two performers are now accusing Vancouver Theatre Sports of both racism and misogyny based on what they say is their experience with the improv group. One of those performers is Tunji Taylor-Lewis, who joins me on the line now to talk a little bit more about this. Tunji, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I know you and fellow comedian Ashley Farrell are both speaking out about this. What was your experience that that prompted you to bring this forward and to talk about this? Um, well, Ashley, um, I have to give her a huge shout out because she really is the one that's been leading the charge on this whole thing. Um, essentially, what happened is like you know, all we, as we all know. Um, uh, the death of George Floyd was a huge tragedy that, you know, struck our world and uh, didn't just affect the States, but affected um, us up here in Canada as well. Um, and there is a big social media trend on Instagram called Blackout Tuesday, where everybody posted a black square. Um, and the intent of this trend was to essentially to amplify melanated voices or to amplify black voices. And uh, Vancouver Theatre Sports decided to, you know, go along with this trend uh, for what we felt was sort of a, um, I guess you could say a, a PR stunt or something to make their company look good. And 
Ashley certainly didn't take too kindly to that because, um, you know, the, the um, experience of uh, our our experience as Black people and the experience historically of, of Vancouver Theatre Sports is that um, Black people have not been, um, you know, um, amplified or or empowered within the company. And in some cases, it's definitely been the opposite. And so uh, we wanted to speak up about that because, you know, we didn't uh, want a situation where a company that we knew um, wasn't, um, you know, putting actions towards was simply, you know, using, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, simply for um, the general public just to have a good perception of their company when they don't really mean it. So um, that's why we're, we're doing what we're doing. And uh, it's gotten a pretty big response so far. Yeah, the response has been uh, incredible. How long were you part of the group or how long did you perform at theater sports? So I was part of the Vancouver Theater Sports Rookie League for about two and a half years. And then um, before that, I was training in their courses for about um, another two years before that. So almost five years I was with the company. And were you told that there was nowhere for you to advance? Yeah, exactly. So um, so essentially for myself, my experience at Theater Sports went sour pretty quickly because like I said, I'd been there for two and a half years, but not just there performing, but like working extremely hard for the company, putting in a lot of extra time, um, studying, you know, the main stagers, uh, studying the performers on the main stage, um, trying to, you know, figure out what they did great that I could apply to my own uh, performance skills. You know, you know, I got my, you know, social media game up. I was performing. Uh, I, I was uh, I was promoting um, our shows uh, on my social media as a micro influencer at the time. So, you know, I, I definitely knew at the time that not only was I a great performer, that was also a, a great, uh, you know, business decision as well. And um, the people all over the company knew me for how hard I worked and how good of a player that I was. Um, but when it came down to it, when it came down to sort of, I guess, make decisions about who makes it up to the main stage, I was told that there was simply no room, uh, which turned out not to be true because um, four of my uh, uh, four of my rookie league castmates um, ended up getting, you know, um, guest spots on the main stage and, and eventually got recruited onto the main stage months later. Um, even though I was told that there was no room and, you know, surely enough, all four of those, um, uh, um, rookie leaguers were white, the people that got recruited, they were all white people. And then, um, also the criticism that I was receiving for why I didn't make it off the main stage was that I needed to learn how to, you know, tone myself down and, uh, be more normal as a performer. So, um, those are pretty classic critiques, uh, for, you know, what that white executives give to black performers. And uh, when I heard those two things, I basically, you know, saw the writing on the wall and decided to, you know, move on from theater sports and, you know, um, you know, pursue my, you know, goals in, in the entertainment industry uh, independently. And that's the journey I'm still on. Hmm. And are you're convinced then, or you believe that that the reason you didn't make it to the main stage isn't because I mean improv is tough. It's it's a mm-hmm. hard thing to do, uh, not for everybody. Is it possible that 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 you you didn't make the cut as uh, the, that you weren't what they wanted? But you're convinced, or you think it was because you're black? Well, certainly, certainly, I, I believe that there was a bias. So I want to make something like very very clear that um, I I did I never felt any overt hate from anybody there. Um, there's a lot of people in the company that I love very much uh, individually, even the people who are like making the decisions of who makes it up to the main stage. 
I believe that there was um, sort of a um, sort of a, a bias there that um, that made people believe that I didn't make the cut. Um, and basically, you know, let me put it to you this way. I, I'm definitely somebody who keeps myself accountable. And I, I just say, you know what, if I'm not good enough for a position, I'm not good enough. Um, but the argument I always use to, you know, give people context of how good I was is that I took the exact skills and, um, you know, performance attributes that I had on the stage and applied them to, you know, social media content. And currently I'm sitting on 125,000 plus followers on, on my social media accounts combined. So um, when it came to, you know, the decisions of, you know, three to five, you know, like, you know, white people, um, I wasn't good enough to make the cut, and I was also being lied to that, you know, there was no room for me. Uh, but the moment I went directly to the people, I was, you know, very much accepted. And, you know, like I have, you know, a bit of an influence that I'm still building. So, um, you know, and uh, it, it, I guess it's I guess it's hard to, you know, make the, the full argument when when one doesn't have the full context of, you know, the full value that I was actively bringing to the company. But, um, you know, that, that's a very, very important part of the story. Like, you know, I was doing very well on stage. I was at the theater, like, you know, almost every day, you know, studying up. I was, you know, bringing, I even, um, you know, grew their social media engagement, you know, brought them, you know, 200 plus followers in, in, uh, in like a day of, of working their social media. I worked at the bar over there. Like I, I worked very, very hard for the company and I was very much known throughout the company. But I guess when it came to, you know, actually taking up some of their space on the main stage, you know, it, it didn't really work out. All right. Well, Tanji, we're out of time, but thank you yeah. for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it was a busy meeting of Park Board Commissioners last night, and in a 5-2 vote, uh, the Park Board approved a motion that will now call on staff to conduct a feasibility study on permanently reducing car traffic within Stanley Park. And this has been a very divisive issue ever since the restrictions were brought in dealing with the pandemic. Well, joining me on the line to talk a little bit more about how things unfolded last night is John Cooper, an NPA Park Board Commissioner. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, so it was a 5-2 vote. I know you voted against this. How did things play out at, at the park board last night? Well, it was a little surprising because I, I really thought that uh, commissioners would have allowed um, this to go to committee so the public would have had a chance to speak. And two of the things that really concerned me the most is, is we got a letter from the uh, Seniors Advisory Committee at the City of Vancouver and they were asking uh, that the motion be referred, as I had suggested, to allow the public to voice their comments. But they also further said that uh, this only be scheduled when the park board meetings are fully accessible to everyone. And I think that's a key key thing that um, you know seniors often you know may not have the access to to computers or or going into a Skype meeting is something completely new to them, and so. Now they've just really been completely denied the opportunity to speak at the early stages. Now, they, there will be an opportunity to speak later, but the cons- my concern is then the report comes back and it's really kind of, it's kind of a done deal. So uh, we also got a letter from the Persons with Disabilities Advisory Committee at, at the city, and it basically mirrored the same thing. They were really asking the park board to just take some time, let it go to a meeting when seniors and, and people with disabilities come down and speak. 
So uh, I think it's a little bit of a, they pushed it through, I think, too quickly. Uh, so what will actually happen now? It's gone to do this feasibility study that park board staff will look at. In the meantime, are there plans to reopen Stanley Park Drive? Well, in the meantime, the park drive is still closed. What we heard last night is staff is working towards uh, uh, sort of a phased one uh, one lane for, for vehicles. The, the, and that will take some time because we're also told they have to procure the dividers and various things. So uh, that concerns me that the park will not be open to, you know, families and, and people who want to get into the park in their vehicle uh, anytime soon. So it, it looks as if bike cyclists are going to get not only the access to the seawall, but also uh, one lane on Stanley Park Drive. Uh, Which, again, seems like that's a done deal, even though this was to put it to a feasibility study. It seems like that is going to happen, and again, without very much public input. Yeah, the other other is that, you know, a number of stakeholders in the park, our various partners that have the restaurants or the aquarium, or uh, Jerry O'Neill, who runs the horse carriages through the park, that, you know, there's always the unintended consequences. So if you think about it, if, if all of those other, if the tour buses, if the if the private automobiles, if the, the horse carriage, all of that are restricted to one lane, uh, there's going to be some real unintended consequences, I believe, with, with uh, such a slowdown. If you get stuck behind a horse and carriage and you're trying to get around the park to get to a restaurant reservation or whatever, um, it's going to be it's going to be challenging for people. And I, I think this Doing this in a in the pandemic when the public's not really connected to our public meetings, um, it concerns me greatly. Because the whole point of closing down the drive to traffic was to let people physically distance, to give people more space. Uh, but I've been getting email. I've been hearing from people saying they feel like they've been totally excluded from the park. Uh, what about parking revenues? How does that play into this? Well, that's another big one. Uh, $4 million a year. Uh, in parking revenues to the park board from the parking in Stanley Park. And we are already, we, we kind of take a double hit because the park board gets half their revenue from taxes, the other half from parking and restaurants and various things like that and, you know, community centers, and they're all closed. So we are taking really a double, double hit. We have not uh, hired uh, staff, a lot of our temporary staff, certainly lifeguards, all of those. So uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenging year. And I just think it's the wrong time to to do this. So, so, so people have a better idea. Then the study is going ahead. In the meantime, if we say go into phase three of the reopening of the province, do you anticipate will the the drive go back to the way it was, and then it could be seeing one lane shut down, or is it going to stay closed until a decision is made on this? I think it's going to stay closed until they're able to move to the one lane solution, and I and and that again, I think is going to take some time, and I think. We're getting into the summer months and families want to get down to Stanley Park, seniors and also those with mobility challenges want to enjoy the park. And they're going to be denied access for some time now. And I I really, you know, the devil's often in the details and um, this is is happening too slowly. We should be getting, you know, getting the park back to normal. And then perhaps if there is a change, you know, wait and do that later. But uh, it seems like just too much emphasis on one uh, a group of cyclists, which I, you know, I, I think it's great that people are cycling, but um, there's a lot of other people. And, and I heard last night, we actually have 12 million visitors a year at Stanley Park in a, in a regular year. Now, most of them, I would suggest, get there by car. 
And I can't get any of that statistics. I get lots of cycling statistics. And that compares to BAMP, BAMP which uh, apparently is 4 million people a year. So, I mean, it's a pretty uh, important destination for people, not just in Vancouver, but when, when things open back up from around the world. Uh, one other uh, topic that was on the agenda for the meeting last night as well was the idea of approving alcohol consumption in Vancouver parks. I understand uh, that didn't really go ahead? No, it was clear that uh, that motion probably would have been called out of order in any event. Uh, the Park Board had voted a number of times over the last couple of years to move forward with a pilot and get the get the rules and regulations in place. So uh, I was actually glad to see that uh, pulled because it was really just a political stunt, to, actually, and because the, the board has already supported, you know, a, a measured approach to this, which I also agree with. So that will take some time because there needs to be some further change to the uh, provincial regulations before we can do it. Um, that's what we've been advised as of May 25th. So we're, we're now waiting a little bit on the province for some changes uh, to make sure that that works. But um, yeah, that was withdrawn. All right. So it's kind of status quo in that sense that people are doing it anyway. Police aren't re- reporting any uptick in incidents. And that's just, I would imagine, going to continue with no changes to the actual law. Well, I think we're going to see, uh, we will see, you know, the, the, the pilot project we've talked about, we're going to start to see some movement towards um, alcohol consumption. But I, I think it will probably take um, more than a few weeks for sure. All right, we'll leave it there. John Cooper, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. John Cooper is a Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. He is with the NPA. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's shift gears a little bit, though, and talk about the easing of border restrictions. You could call it a slight easing that was announced yesterday by the Prime Minister. It's not going to change a whole lot, though, for people who just want to go across the border, whether it's to get gas, to visit your favourite place on the other side of the border. And let's bring in Karen Frisbee, the President of the Oroville Chamber of Commerce. Uh, they're just a 15-minute drive from a Soyuz. If you've been in that area, you've likely been to Oroville. Karen, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, what's, and good morning to everybody. Good, good morning. What's been the biggest impact on Oroville with the border closure? Uh, actually, we miss our Canadian neighbors. Um, we have a lot of second home owners from Canada, and they have a great impact on our community. Um, just, I personally love working with them, and um, they just add a lot to our community. Um Obviously, our businesses miss the traffic that usually comes through and stops in and um, just enjoys our community. So It's got to be a big economic hit then as well, even if it's people buying gas or shopping at some of the local businesses. Absolutely. Yes, um, it has been, but it's also made our local residents more aware of the fact that we have a lot more here than we use. Um, So the local residents have really stepped up and started staying home more to do their shopping. Um, We used to always either run to Canada or run down South and, you know, pick things up as we went and didn't really utilize our local area as much as we should have. So the businesses have really appreciated that support. 
Is there enough of a population in Oroville, though, to pick up the kind of the, the hole that's been left by tourists not coming from Canada? Oh, goodness, no. <laughs> not even close. Um, <laughs> no, the, the hole that is left um, impacts so many different areas of our environment that it just, you know, it's beyond economic, it's a beyond visiting, it's just the human nature of utilizing your neighborhood. And the border was part of our neighborhood. So, um, you know, the tourists that came down, the tourists that were heading to Canada that stopped here for a night before crossing the border. Um, yeah, it's really, it's impacted a lot. So... I know there are a lot of people that are waiting and anticipating when the border will reopen. How are things as far as COVID-19 on this side of the border? Our numbers are pretty good. Is there is there confidence, do you think, on both sides with Oroville residents uh, that when the border does reopen, they're ready for it? I believe so. Um, in the North Okanagan, which is Tenasket, Oroville, we've had three cases since the first week of the closure um, and it's never changed. And, you know, we just were a naturally socially distanced area. Um, our environment provides the resource that we don't have to be on top of each other to interact. So um, I don't think that will change a lot. You know, typically over the summers, there's a lot more people around, but there's always distance between because it is, you know, we have a lot more space than people. So. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, we will watch and see what happens with the border. Karen, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Karen Frisbee, the president of the Oroville Chamber of Commerce.